0: The following sermon was delivered during morning worship at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith every Sunday on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Midtown Manhattan. And now, here is our guest preacher for today's service.
1: Please pray with me. Oh God, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight our strength, and our Redeemer. Amen. Friends, family, siblings in Christ, good morning. My name is Casey Aldridge, and if you have ever seen me outside of the walls of this church, where I serve as the seminary and intern for middle school and young adult ministries, or if you've ever seen me on a warmer day than this, you likely know that I have a tattoo sleeve on my left arm. The centerpiece of this sleeve right here on the front-facing side Um, is an illustration of Mary, the mother of Jesus. My tattoo, based on a piece of artwork by Philadelphia artist Ben Wildflower, depicts a kind of feminist, punk rock Mary. Stars form a halo around Mary's head, her right fist raised in the air. Mary is wearing combat boots and standing on top of a serpent and a skull, symbols of death and worldly power in our tradition. This Mary stares intently forward into the future, And in Wildflower's original artwork, this icon of Mary is surrounded by selected words from the Magnificat, the song or canticle of Mary. Cast down the mighty, lift the lowly, fill the hungry, and send the rich away. This Advent season, our sermon series has explored the songs of Advent and of Christmas, their often peculiar lyrics, their anticipatory themes, their near and dear places in our hearts. The hymn that I have the honor of exploring with you this morning is Hymn 100 in your Glory to God hymnals, the first song we sang together this morning, the so-called Canticle of the Turning. But this Canticle of the Turning is actually Rory Cooney's 1990 folk reformulation of a much older song, Mary's lyrical response upon learning from the angel Gabriel that she will give birth to Jesus, who will be called the Son of the Most High. In light of this revelatory news, Mary's is a song of praise, and yet one also imbued with protest, full of that righteous indignation one finds in the folk melodies of Pete Seeger or Woody Guthrie, full of that punk rock spirit that one finds in the verses and riffs of Patti Smith or Riot Girl. But for the moment, let us listen to Mary's song on her own terms, printed in your bulletin and preserved for us in the first chapter of the Gospel according to Luke, verses 46-55. through Listen now for the word of the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Before I go any further, I just want to acknowledge how incredible it is that we hear these words together, the defiant words of a pregnant and unmarried Jewish Palestinian teenage girl, and then at their conclusion we say in unison, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. How amazing is it that from now on all generations will call this young Mary blessed. To this day in every corner of the world Christians remember Mary as an exemplary figure of faith. How remarkable considering that by almost every standard within her first century context, Mary was marginalized. She was poor, she was young, she was a girl, soon enough she would become a refugee. She was Jewish and she was Palestinian living under the yoke of Roman imperialism, and in her song we hear the gospel gospel message before Jesus is ever on the scene, articulated by someone who has experienced certain oppressions that her son, our Messiah, will never experience, at least not directly so. And yet this too is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Earlier this morning we sang, though I am small, my God, my all, you work great things in me. Mary's words, however, are no meek or mild sentiments reflecting some docile or passive acquiescence to her social location at the bottom of the Roman political pyramid. Rather, they are bold in tone and revolutionary in impact. Who does not feel the simultaneous pull of convicting anxiety, but also electrifying excitement upon hearing Mary's confident proclamation that God has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts? This is poetry, a punk rock protest anthem carefully crafted to strike fear in the hearts of tyrants, whether Herod or Caesar, and to engender hope for outcasts and for the oppressed. Mary's song courses through and through with radical energy and with the euphoria of her hope in a God who is making all things new. A God who takes the side of the poor and who looks with favor on God's servants. A God who is turning the world upside down and who in doing so is setting the world right side up. After all, what is our world but a world turned upside down? We say every week that the earth and all that is in it belongs to God Yet ours is a world in which access to food, housing, and health care is dependent upon one's ability to pay. That, uh, surely ours is a world turned upside down in need of being turned right side up again. That's why we hear Mary, condemned by the powerful to the bottom of the Roman social pyramid, joyfully saying that the Lord has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. How different is the work of our God from the work of the invisible hand? which knows no justice deeper than supply and demand. The Canticle of the Turning takes Mary's subversive spirit and updates it for the 21st century. The hungry poor shall weep no more for the food they can never earn. There are tables spread, every mouth be fred, for the world is about to turn. The same goes for power and authority. Against those kings and czars who claim the legitimacy to rule for themselves, or who justify their position atop social and political hierarchies through appeals to divinely ordained birthrights, uh, Mary announces that God brings down the powerful from their thrones. In the Canticle of the Turning, we sing with Mary a warning to all those who seek power for their own sake. From the halls of power to the fortress tower, not a stone will be left on stone. Let the King beware, for your justice tears every tyrant from his throne. Jesus, who is at once a vulnerable infant and also the King of Kings, comes to us not as disorder, but as the one who will establish true order against the illusory, false hierarchies of our world. A world at war is an upside down world as well, one that the Prince of Peace comes to set right side up again. There is no explicit reference to warfare, terror, or bloodshed in Mary's song, uh, but our young Palestinian cantor was certainly acquainted with the vicious violence of Roman occupation. And later in the fifth century, St. Augustine wrote his monumental treatise on the city of God. Uh, St. Augustine did not deny the possibility of just wars, in which righteous folk may be compelled to involve themselves in conflicts for the sake of the good. However, he did go to great lengths to demonstrate that the Pax Romana, the so-called Roman peace, was a fiction. The civilizing project of Rome across Europe North Africa and the Middle East brought a common language and a certain internal stability to the empire, for sure. But, Augustine asks, how many great wars, what slaughter of men, what outpourings of human blood have been necessary to bring this about? American society, much like Rome of Mary's day, experiences a certain level of peace and comfort partially because of the forever wars we have at our borders and out of sight in other hemispheres. And so in the Canticle of the Turning, those who long for peace, a deep peace and not the illusory illusory peace of Pax Romana or Pax Americana, sing our hope that though the nations rage from age to age, we remember who holds us fast. God's mercy must deliver us from the conqueror's crushing grasp. The saving word that our forebears heard is the promise that holds us bound till the spear and rod be crushed by God, who is turning the world around. When we sing Hymn 100, we join Mary in her ancient and revolutionary anticipation of a world turned upside down. We echo Mary's longing for a social order restored to and consistent with the Creator's vision for a society. This pointing toward the promised future, this yearning for the not yet here, is what makes the Canticle of the Turning a song of Advent, rather than of Christmas. But notice just how far its tone is removed from other Advent hymns in our tradition. The songs of Advent often represent the world as weary, weighed down, covered in darkness and wanting for hope. In Advent we sing of the people who walked in darkness and of those who dwelt in the land of the shadow. In comfort, comfort ye my people, humankind is depicted as sitting in darkness, mourning neath their sorrows load. These songs of Advent tell us that the coming of the infant Christ will be in darkest night, when the world is despairing. A far cry from the Magnificat, which more aptly fits the adjectives that Chris Harvey recently attributed to The Clash's classic punk album, London Calling. Angry, ecstatic, and full of swaggering grandeur. The archetypal Advent hymn for me, Zilkamu Kam Emmanuel. It captures the quintessential ethos of the Advent season, as we tend to understand it. It's somber, dismal, patient, passive, and resigned. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is the raw and uncensored petition of a wo- weary and worn-down world, the lament of the masses of God's people trudging along without any expectation of God's inbreaking into this broken world. It seems to me that in this and other Advent hymns, we sing as if we do not have hope so much as we're hoping for hope. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. The hymn's refrain, Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel has come to thee, O Israel, seems almost ironic and insufficiently able to lighten the mood of the hymn. It certainly pales next to the boldly euphoric and jubilant hope of Mary's Magnificat and the Canticle of the Turning. Next to my soul cries out with a joyful shout that the God of my heart is great. We have the weary petition uh, to disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadow put to flight. To him, 100s, my heart shall sing of the day you bring. Let the fires of your justice burn. The melancholic voice of O come, O come, Emmanuel replies. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory o'er the grave. There's a poetic element to the usual relationship between Advent and Christmas. Only at the solstice, only in the deepest, darkest part of winter, do we experience at last the presence of God with us. The British science fiction show Doctor Who secularizes this idea, explaining the significance of Christmas falling just days after the winter solstice. In the show's time-traveling take on Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, one character remarks that on every world, in the deepest, darkest part of winter, Uh, At the exact midpoint, everybody stops and celebrates and turns and hugs. As if to say, well done, well done everyone. We're halfway out of the dark. The symbolism of this interpretation is powerful. God draws near to us even when we are weary and without hope, when the world is deep in its darkest season. Thanks be to God. But the cyclical nature of the church calendar where we remember and enact Christmas Day every December 25th, and moreover the synchronization of Advent with the shortening of days at the start of winter, should not blind us to what scripture promises us. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. God does draw near to us, God does not draw near to us only once we've lost all hope, when we have reached the end of our rope. Where would the good news be in that? What would it mean for us to wrongly think that God can only come to us once the last trace of hope has departed from us. Such a view might compel us to seek out misery or hopelessness so that we might experience at last the presence of God. It would cause us to lift up despair, loneliness, and pain as virtues capable of connecting us to the divine, rather than looking for God in those who attend to those who suffer by way of feeding the hungry, healing the sick, or holding the hands of the depressed. Politically and socially, this view might imply that God will wait for the world to be at its most inverted before turning the world upside down again and setting it right side up. It might suggest that for Christ to return and complete the work of God's kingdom, humanity must be more desperate and more hopeless than it ever has been before. But this incorrect understanding of Advent leads us to some very troubling historical conclusions. That some catastrophe more frightful than the Holocaust, more violent than slavery, or more alienating than the AIDS crisis, just to name a few, must necessarily still come to pass before God will finally intervene on behalf of God's helpless, hopeless people. As the wars, droughts, fires, and floods of climate change loom on the horizon, this nightmarish interpretation of Advent bids us to accept, with patient resignation, the death of this world. For only in our darkest night will God finally get to work, setting the world right-side up. Young Mary emphatically rejects this heresy. God does indeed draw near to us when we are running on empty. But that is because God comes to us according to God's own schedule, not according to the church calendar, or the solar or lunar calendar, or the despair or euphoria we might experience in this life. Although Christina Rossetti's 1872 poem describes the birth of Christ in the bleak midwinter when earth stood hard as iron and water like a stone, the footnote in your hymnal rightly observes that this text describes winter weather in England rather than in Palestine. The bleak midwinter of England does not deny or preclude Mary's Palestinian fire. It may very well be England where you are or where I am. But that doesn't mean that Palestine isn't out there somewhere, or that God isn't coming for both England and for Palestine, for the hopeless and for the hopeful. There is hope somewhere, and Jesus comes to save those who have hope just as much as he comes to save those without it. I want to close by telling you about the first two times I sang the Canticle of the Turning. First, however, a bit of a backstory is in order. I was raised somewhat casually attending uh, youth group, Sunday school, and choir at First Presbyterian Church of Concord, North Carolina. My time at First Pres was an important source of moral formation for me. It was there that I learned the importance of community, service, and love of one's neighbor. I learned how to read the Bible not as a weapon to be used against vulnerable outsiders, but as a complicated and open text to be engaged responsibly in the service of love. Nevertheless, God remained an abstract notion for me, and I did not read the world in any spiritual or religious sense. While I witnessed the involvement of my home church in its community, I could not help but notice the distance that I had perceived between the ideals and uh, the precepts of Jesus and the conduct of the larger American church. That is to say that I found hope less in the pews than in the streets. Halfway through my sophomore year of high school at the start of 2011, I watched on Twitter as the Arab Spring unfolded. From my bedroom in rural North Carolina, I followed along on my laptop and tried to amplify the message of protest movements around the world in the year that followed. I watched nonviolent protesters in Tunisia and Egypt bring down the powerful from their thrones. I saw ragtag anarchists and socialists in Occupy Wall Street fill the hungry with good, fill the hungry with good things. And in those days, my hope was not unlike the ecstatic and boisterous hope of Mary's song. Yet over the next several months, Zuccotti Park in Lower Manhattan was evicted. In the months and years that followed, the democratic advances of the Arab Spring rolled back as well. And certain movements from Libya to Syria were met with harsh repression and devolved into bloody, sectarian civil wars. Uh, by and large, business continued as usual. It looked to me for a moment like protests against corruption and income inequality had the capacity to turn the world upside down. And yet the status quo remained intact. Dictators regained their grips on power and exploitation continued unabated. By way of a series of unexpected detours, I found myself back in the church discerning a call to ministry. After Reverend Dr. William J. Barber of the North Carolina NAACP spoke, at a labor and environmental protest I had helped to organize back in May 2014. The first time that I heard the Canticle of the Turning came well after this call was underway, on January 2nd, 2016, at the annual college conference in Montreat, North Carolina. There, on a pitch black evening in Anderson Auditorium, a thousand or so college students sang a rousing rendition of this hymn. The hymn became an instant favorite of mine, uh, filled with acoustic guitars, drums, and stomping. It captured the, for me the crux of what I longed for from God, a world about to turn. Not as the detached longing of O Come, O come Emmanuel, but as a defiant and embodied hope, full of anticipation and expectation of a God who has promised to set the world right side up. The following December, I sang the hymn in my uh, home church. It was Advent, and my heart was thrilled to sing of the day God would bring with the community I had grown up in. I was excited to chant loudly and excitedly with my church family, let the fires of your justice burn. Unfortunately, the congregation, uh, somewhat unacquainted with the song or unfamiliar with Mary's punk rock hope within it, sang it without the feeling and vigor and electricity that had made it so special in Montreal. It felt flat. Sung Sung in a more somber voice, the same somber voice as every other Advent hymn, the gospel according to Mary had been stripped of its power. The canticle of the turning ought not replace Ocam Ocam O, come, o come Emmanuel. There are good reasons to lament and weep at the state of the world around us. But Mary's exuberant song does remind us that the Son of God is not born into a world where all of us have lost hope, or our resolve, or our morale. Likewise the Son of God is not waiting to come until all have given up their joy, their vigor, their life. If that were the case, then we ought to race toward misery and hopelessness and war for only there will we find Jesus. No, Mary responds, Jesus comes for those with abundant hope as well as for those without any. The infant Jesus certainly brings the light of salvation to Rossetti's bleak, wintry England, but the birth of Jesus is also the spark of those revolutionary fires of justice in Mary's Palestine. This both and is good news. Traditional Advent hymns tell us that at our most exhausted, at the end of our rope, or in the midst of our darkest night, God chooses to draw near to us. And yet the canticle of the turning resists any subsequent idealization of suffering. God draws near to those of us also who are angry at the state of affairs of the world, who do have hope in a God who is turning the upside down world right side up again, who is setting prisoners free, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, comforting those who mourn, and bringing wars to an end. And because hope, too, can be our meeting point for God, we are invited not only to hope, but also to anticipate and participate in God's work of setting this world right-side up. We don't have to wait for things to get worse so that God will step in and make things better. We already have what we need to commit ourselves to working for God's kingdom. Hope, the inclination that this world is not as it was designed to be, and the presence of God with us. Mary sings a protest song an anthem that is stubborn and triumphant and full of life. What would it mean to incorporate Mary's feeling, excitement, and hope into our enactment of Advent, into our singing of Hymn 100? This morning's service is something of an experiment for me. You may have noticed that Hymn 100, The Canticle of the Turning, is printed twice in your bulletin. Um, we already sung it once in quite a traditional way, without any variations in tempo or stomping or exuberance. But we're going to sing it one more time. And this this time, I want you to think of the good news that Mary proclaims. I want you to close your eyes and set yourself on, set your mind on something about this world that needs to be turned upside down. Something that you cannot tolerate and something that you know that God cannot tolerate. Something that you and God can join hand in hand to overturn. I'll be thinking about an unnamed fifth grade girl, the daughter of an incarcerated parent, who in the next few weeks will receive an angel tree gift from this congregation. A few weeks back, the 20s and 30s group at this church committed to fulfilling the angel requests of two young children. One of these two was a fifth grade girl who asked for a white sweater, glitter glue, and puzzles. The specificity and unassuming humility of her wish breaks my heart. When we sing the Canticle of the Turning again, I will be holding this anonymous girl in my heart. I will will sing with Mary and with all of those throughout history who have dared to hope against all odds that there is a God out there who lifts up the lowly and fills the hungry with good things. I will sing a protest against our society's addiction to incarceration, and I will sing a prayer that when this world is turned right-side up again, this young girl will be reunited with her parents and will have a white sweater, glitter glue, puzzles, and things she has not yet even dared to ask for. I hope that you'll join me in singing the Canticle of the Turning one more time, this time with a joyful shout, imitating Mary's euphoric and unshakable hope in a world about to turn.
0: We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and provided a message of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you are in New York City, we invite you to visit our historic church and join us for worship. You will find our address, worship calendar, and other information on our website, FAPC.org. If you would like to help support this audio ministry, please text the dollar amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to six four six four nine one eight three three one. Again, that is the amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646 491 8331.